the Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned, how most of us have been patterned. It doesn't really work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. Keeping the possibility of purification at bay, the possibility of transformation at bay. And, of course, it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this practice, as I've already mentioned, about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come close, to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or without desiring it to be different. In specifically practicing Samatha, concentration, and metta. These principles, same principles, apply, though the investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it is, as it can be in a vipassana practice. Unless an unwholesome state really blows up into becoming very pervasive and very sticky. So now I'd like to take a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy. And so from this perspective, it can be actually quite seductive. Quite some time ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and identified with her anger. And, in fact, spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt strong and powerful in the anger. But, unfortunately, she was quite an unhappy person. She was kind of like a porcupine people would begin to get uh, close to her and then feel the sharp needles 
the sharp sting of her anger and they'd move away. She was a very lonely person. And yet she was so identified in her mind as an angry person and actually so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to truly practice. And it sometimes takes a lot of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself to be open to, to be with, and to clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger or fear or jealousy or irritation. Practice changes our mind and is about making the choice to transform our heart, to transform our mind so that we embody love and it's it's very it's a very courageous choice actually. It actually opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, to not pretend anything, but to stay still, be here, be present in relationship with what is. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with the very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. And the first year was for two months. And then the second year that I went back was for one month. One student um, who stayed for the whole two months practice during that first year was a man in his early 40s. He was a very successful big city businessman in Warsaw who had also been uh, diligently practicing uh, Zen and Karate and Aikido for about 10 years prior to his coming to this two-month Vipassana and Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle. And living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time throughout his childhood. With this fear still being present in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of fear in thought and words and in actions. He'd taken on that same ill temper. And he described himself to me as a man of heavy emotions. 
which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he'd begun to see himself much more clearly through his martial arts practices and his through his interest in Buddhism and meditation practice. For the full year following the two months uh, retreat in Prajeka, Poland, this man very diligently and mindfully practiced metta when he went back to his daily life. And he practiced metta with just one phrase, may I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this present moment. And he said that as he came back the next year, and he said that as the year progressed, he saw his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner and sooner in its process. And thus he was able to let go more and more often before it got too big and blossomed out into, the, into his world. When he returned to Prajeka, that's the name of the town near where the retreat center was, when he returned to Prajeka for a month of retreat the following year, he was a very much changed and much happier man. I think what's often overlooked is the disastrous effect of anger. The harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, it's constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective just vanish. One often feels restless and maybe driven, nothing satisfying. Sleep can be quite difficult. The body is tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large, and so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line's drawn that isn't to be passed, with each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both, both amazing, simple, And difficult to see is that irritation, anger, fear, rage, hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. And the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary, unpleasant, or 
pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends upon the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out. A specific mood of the mind, an emotional state, emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or self-judgment or sadness or doubt or greed or clinging or expectation or disappointment, it's very helpful to... Try to let them go. Just let these, tho- these thoughts, these stories that are spinning out, just let them drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body. Feeling the emotion directly in itself without the story. So what might you be feeling? Maybe heat, tightness, maybe pressure, heaviness, contraction, Vibration. Where is it? And really important, how is it changing? How is it changing? And notice the mind. Meaning at this point, what is your relationship to these sensations? Is there resistance? So more contraction. Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, If the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body and to the breath. Or you might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the fields, the trees, in conjunction with the 
wide open spaciousness of the sky. Really take an interest. Notice the birds, insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It is in present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Really beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in that natural world can be both an immediate experience in itself and a clear mirror of ease for us. So remember the mountain climber Gerland's relationship to fear. And again from the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj who often uh, taught in dialogue with his students. A student asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I'm this, I'm that, that fears loss, and craves gain, and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, it doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy in clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend uh, just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. Our heart, mind is clouded. When we're caught in the 
energies of greed and attachment. We are blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this, with greed uh, really being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis, people blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, in fact that it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. I mean, for instance, it's in part, at least, what got you here on this retreat. So in light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to uh, share a prayer. I was told it was a personal prayer of Mother Teresa's. she um, worked with on a very regular basis. I'll read it just the way it was sent. It was sent to me by somebody. Deliver me, O Jesus, and I changed it to Odama, but we'll leave it. It's her prayer, so. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. She left nothing out. (laughs) It was, uh, I think it was within an hour or so after I received this and I read it, I got a phone call from a friend. And uh, I said, uh, uh, oh, I just want to share this with you. I just got this. It's amazing. And, uh, And so I read it out loud to him over the phone. And his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, we have a lot to Mm -hmm. do. It's true. But I actually find this um, prayer quite inspiring. Many of us can become quite attached uh, to getting or trying to Uh, keep certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to something or trying to get something back. Or we can expend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing. 
and maybe even for some of you here in this retreat. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting you had uh, the other day. Or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you experienced on your last retreat or five years ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire. That is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. And I think in, in, in relationship to that, a good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my desires? <clears throat> so a simple, quite mundane personal example. Quite a number of years ago now, I was at a retreat center here in New Mexico that had some of the most wonderful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens, and I noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present aware of the pleasantness, great pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else, but all I wanted to do was stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and to go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. And I was experiencing a tightness in the body and a degree of kind of burning irritation in the heart and mind. I got up and walked away to do what needed to be done, but there was still um, a clinging to this sweet smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back. I was planning as I was walking on to this next thing about when I could get back to the garden, imagining just how nice it would be when I could get finally get back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens really quickly. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion, and clear seeing and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was quite a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, says this or said this about humility. 
she's not alive anymore. This, this is uh, what she, uh, about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are. To see my inner being as it is, good or bad. To observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility, humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she said. As we begin to sense, see, and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. And I think for many people, there's often some confusion, delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see and know it really clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning. These are his words. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And on he goes on through each of the six sense doors this way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? And as he always answered his own question, he said, burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe uh, uh, that was uh, from this man named uh, Fred Maramarco. At risk of uh, giving you a recipe that you already have, and maybe cook up occasionally, I'd like to share this one with you. And the ingredients for this recipe, it's called a recipe for unhappiness. The ingredients is one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, a half pound of alternate scenario, one bunch of actual reality, oh, it's a quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. (laughs) Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in the exact (laughs) pattern that existed before separation. 
Pour in idealized worldview and process in a food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add, add it to what is and an ability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let it stand until tears form. <laughs> Garnish with minced ev- envy and serve immediately. Um, and uh, another uh, teaching that really kind of says the same thing, but in a very different way. This is from the Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. And of course, the Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration and mindfulness, rooted in kindness, that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see so clearly that we see through them and see their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, and maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is uh, just a very short um, piece from uh, a Mahayana Sutra from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotus the red lotus and the white lotus, do not grow on the dry ground in wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. So for me, when I discovered this teaching, it was wonderful. This teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies. The mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourself or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our practice. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being 
transformed through practice into what are sometimes called the nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions, or as the Buddha often called them, cankers, are transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states digest into wisdom. So for just a moment now, I'd like to take a look at a few of these states and their transformative possibilities in a very brief way. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear, discriminative awareness. Discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great, strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear or judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to relinquish, to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in our mind and heart. The place of freedom from the burning the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. As our Samatha practice begins to take deeper root and blossom, we really, truly begin to know that it's just enough. That this moment is just enough. Just as it is. In closing the talk this evening with a poem It's called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. Some of you may know uh, Hokusai was a Japanese painter and his probably most famous painting that some of you may know is a great big wave, painting of a big wave and underneath the wave, down the way, the wave coming over looks like fingers, kind of like that. And then underneath the wave is a little boat with fishermen in it. 
Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, building, pe- buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda veranda, or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.